Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. In today's episode, I would like to follow up on some of the topics that we touched on last week. And in particular, I would like to start with this idea of Babylon's fall in the very night that Belshazzar held the feast and desecrated the vessels of the house of God by drinking his wine in praise of the false gods, in particular the gods of gold, silver, wood, and stone, which in a certain sense represent the various values of the different monetary systems, gold being considered the best, silver second, and other materials representing inferior monies. And today that Feasting is epitomized by BlackRock's investment in Bitcoin, allowing corporations to purchase shares in an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, which is supposed to give them exposure to investing in Bitcoin. The issue here is that those who invest in the ETF do not actually hold keys to their own Bitcoin. And in that way of operating with BlackRock as the custodian, it essentially opens the door for all the sort of corruption that plagues the fiat financial world to this day. There's really no guarantee that actual Bitcoin are even backing the investments in that ETF. And even if there are, it is not the clients, the investors themselves, who hold the keys to those coins. And therefore, any kind of regulatory measures could be implemented that would deny them the ability to ever redeem those coins, if it's even possible under BlackRock's terms. And so it's really just an extension of the financial gaming that has been going on in the markets for however long. That is to say, it's just a numbers game with the corporations benefiting by the swings in the Bitcoin price and also giving BlackRock the opportunity to influence those swings in a greater way through the sheer volume of money they have to throw around on those investments. And so, essentially, the way this game works is that the big players can throw their weight around, so to speak, and make splashes in the market value of the asset. And this particular case, Bitcoin. And then at the same time, you know, they're doing that with one hand, but then with the other hand, they're betting on the changes in the market value of Bitcoin. And the, that betting then pays off because it's easy to bet on something that you are the one primarily influencing. And so this is a really advantageous position for a company like BlackRock, who has so much influence and so many funds available to allocate. And it's essentially a dishonest way of stealing value from other people who are in the market, but who are not gambling in the same way and end up just paying the bill for the financial gains that the big corporations like BlackRock are making. And this essentially turns into a moral question as to whether trading in general is okay in the sight of God. And I would 
pretty much say that when you're trading in the way of gambling, that's knowing that the gains that you're going to make through longing or shorting various assets are coming from the pockets of people who are not betting as wisely as you might be, that that is essentially another way of stealing money, or you could say swindling people out of money. And in a certain sense, it's justified by those who practice it by noting that others buy and sell according to their own free will, and therefore it's perfectly legitimate. The issue I have with that is that it's kind of like any other scam, that the one perpetrating the scam provides some kind of product or service that they purport to be something valuable, something good, and essentially get people to invest in it or purchase it only to fail to deliver and run away with the money. And how is that really any different? The person willingly invested in something that wasn't trustworthy, but it was their choice. They took that risk. And so ultimately, they bear the responsibility of that. And while that's true, that does not excuse the bad intentions and bad actions of the ones who perpetrate such scams. And so in the same way, yes, there are always people buying and selling and perhaps losing money on their transactions due to the bad timing for the market, but that does not excuse those who are playing the markets specifically to take advantage of those kinds of transactions. So obviously there's a gray area there, but it seems to me that if you're profiting by taking advantage of people who are in a disadvantaged situation, that's less than moral, in my opinion. And this kind of brings me to the subject that we almost touched on last week as well, which is the true value or true price of Bitcoin. And this is a topic that kind of comes to light when you see big corporations able and perhaps actually influencing the price of an asset artificially. And that begs the question, well, how do you know what the price of the asset really should be? What is its true market value? Just to kind of put it in context, if you trade uh, Bitcoin with fiat, for example, so for example, you have some fiat money and somebody else has some Bitcoin and you would like to buy Bitcoin from that person, but you're not sure how much fiat money you should be giving to the other person in exchange for so much Bitcoin. Well, how do you figure out the market value? I mean, the obvious way is to go online, look at the exchanges, at the markets where these assets are being exchanged, and see what the market value is. The problem is different exchanges have different rates, different markets have different rates. And so how do you ascertain what the rate should be in your particular case? Well, of course, a lot of people just average the exchange rates of the various exchanges and call it a day. Well, generally speaking, in an open, you know, free market system, that's perfectly valid. But what if you know for a fact that the exchanges are manipulating the prices and they're doing so in coordination, perhaps as a simple outcome of the movements of big investors like BlackRock. If you know that the exchanges don't offer a rate that is truly fair, 
then the question becomes, well, how do you know what a fair rate actually is? And the answer we proposed in the last episode is that the fair rate is actually the rate of production of Bitcoin in this case. How much does it actually cost to produce Bitcoin? And the answer to that is found by investigating the cost of producing Bitcoin, which takes one into the mining industry. So the way Bitcoin is produced is that miners are plugged in to the electrical grid, connected to the internet, and through the work that they do, Bitcoin is acquired through the transaction fees and block rewards for the blocks that are found by that miner in concept. In practice, a particular miner might not ever find a block or may find one very, very infrequently. And that's where the mining pools come into the equation here. And they essentially take the work of all of the miners that are contributing to their pool. And when a block is found in that pool, the rewards and the block fees, the transaction fees, are divided equally among all of the participants in that pool, uh, weighted, of course, uh, based on the amount of work that each one is contributing. And so in that way, a particular miner, a particular worker, will receive rewards even if the block was not ultimately found by that particular worker. But this is the fair distribution of wages in the form of Bitcoin in the mining pool setup. And so essentially the way it works is that the miners are earning on a continual basis in proportion to the amount of work, the amount of hash rate they are contributing to the mining of the new blocks. Okay, so that's kind of a just a quick review of the topics from last week that I want to kind of delve into a little more deeply here. And in particular, I want to look at some Bible stories that I think are relevant here. And furthermore, I want to kind of think about the next three months and what is likely to happen in the context of all these things. So first of all, if we are looking at the story of the fall of Babylon, in the context of timing, it's very interesting that this party held by Belshazzar, at which the handwriting on the wall appeared because he was drinking out of the vessels of the temple of God, it was that very night that the kingdom was overthrown. And in the kind of prophetic equivalent of that, taking that story as a prophetic example, a day in prophecy stands for a year. And so that party was at the very end of the day. And it was that night that the kingdom was overthrown. Now, if we look at the period of a day as in comparison to the period of a year, the end of the day would correspond to the end of the year. And in biblical terms, the year was considered to begin in the spring, and then the year would end sort of after the winter as the next spring was approaching. And so if we look at where we're at in the year right now, we are approaching spring, and so we are at the end of the old year and at the beginning of the new year in biblical terms. And so this is very interesting because it suggests that the fall of antitypical Babylon today, although we could say it would be in the same year that the nations, particularly the United States, began to drink out of the vessels of Bitcoin through the ETFs, through BlackRock, the largest investment company in the world. You know, that all began right here at the beginning of 2024. And one could say, okay, 2024 would be the year of 
the fall of the dollar just based on the fact that Babylon's fall was the same day or the same night as Belshazzar's party as the handwriting on the wall. Well, that's fine and good in general, but perhaps a more specific time frame could be determined by recognizing that it was that very night. So, in other words, that party of Belshazzar at the end of the day means that the subsequent fall is not just within the next 24-hour period, but actually occurs before the next day. And if we look at that in the context of years, in sort of a prophetic comparison, then that would suggest that the BlackRock ETF that has gone into operation at the end of a biblical year, very near the end of a biblical year, that that suggests that the fall of the dollar should also take place within that same biblical year, before the new year begins. And that puts a much closer constraint on the time period that we're dealing with here. So if we're looking at springtime, which begins no earlier than March 20, and you could perhaps say no later than about May, depending on the exact timing of the calendar, the biblical calendar following the rules that are outlined in the Bible, then that puts the limits of Babylon's fall within about the next three months. So that's not a lot of time. And I would take that as a pretty serious warning to all those who have funds on exchanges to remove those funds from the exchanges and hold them securely in your own wallet under your own private keys in the form of Bitcoin. Now, it might be tempting to try to make profits during this time and everyone has to make their own decisions as to how they invest their money and what risks they take. And I'm not here to give specific financial advice, but I do believe that this time period is going to be especially interesting, especially critical, and ultimately that the dollar will collapse in that time frame. I think that is an important time frame that will mark the fall of the kingdoms of this world, the, the modern-day Babylon. And that being the case, it would be pretty dangerous to trust the exchanges through that collapse. And you've seen time and again how exchanges have gone under one after another after another, and it's just a question of when the next one or next ones will go under. And in such a catastrophic financial situation, it's highly unlikely that individuals will ever be able to recover their funds from such exchanges. So that's why it's so important to really stick to the core principles of Bitcoin, which is self-custody, holding your own coins under your own keys, and essentially guarding your wealth in that way. And it's likely under these kinds of circumstances that a lot of crazy things are going to be happening, and you need to be able to have the assurance that your resources are safe and in your power. And that means bringing them off of the exchanges. Now, it's interesting because we're dealing with concepts that in biblical terms are related to the temple of God. And Babylon, particularly King Belshazzar, defiled the vessels of the house of God by drinking to the honor of the financial gods of his time out of those vessels. And that, as we noted, is an illustration for how the financial heavyweights are drinking or profiting from the market fluctuations, from 
speculation on the Bitcoin price. They're profiting on the Bitcoin market. And if Bitcoin, as we purport in this podcast, is a reflection of the kingdom of heaven in terms of its values and principles, and that ultimately it is a financial manifestation of the temple of God in the sense that the temple was constructed with gold throughout, with money. In other words, it was a financial instrument. It was a financial investment, the temple was. And that's what Bitcoin is as a whole. It's a global financial instrument or investment that every individual can participate in, just as in ancient times every child of the kingdom of Israel could and would bring sacrifices, money, in other words, to the temple in Jerusalem. So in that comparison, when we see the ungodly powers, the fiat financial powers, profiting from Bitcoin, or attempting to do so, through the exchange-traded funds and such things, we see the desecration of the temple right before our eyes the temple of Bitcoin. And the interesting thing is that Jesus Christ, at the beginning of his ministry, cleansed the temple. And he did so by throwing out the money changers. You could say throwing out the exchanges. The exchanges, or the money changers, were the ones at the temple who would exchange one currency for another whether that be exchanging money for animals, for sacrifices, or exchanging foreign currencies for the gold of the temple, the shekel of the sanctuary, so to speak. And Jesus, both at the beginning of his ministry and also again at the end of his ministry, cleansed the temple by throwing out these money changers and essentially just opening the temple to those who come in the pure spirit of worship to the God of heaven. And so, in a certain sense, that's connected to this story of Belshazzar, because Belshazzar illustrates how the heathen desecrated the temple by drinking from the temple vessels. In today's day, that's by profiting from the gold of the sanctuary, profiting from Bitcoin in an unholy way by manipulating the prize, essentially by money printing, which is made possible by the ETFs. I mean, just to be clear, with with an ETF, it is possible to print fake Bitcoin, and through that mechanism, they can perpetuate the same scam the same inflation scam that the fiat world has been doing, you know, since ever. So, of course, Bitcoin, however, holds a true standard against that. And so ultimately that scam will collapse. And I believe that's the mechanism through which the dollar will ultimately collapse. And in that way, Jesus cleanses the temple again today by throwing out the money changers. There's a lot of fear in the cryptocurrency world because of stable coins, which essentially represent an avenue for money printing as well. And these are valid concerns. And all of these contribute to the reasons why I would highly recommend moving money off of exchanges in the coming three months. Well, To this point about cleansing the temple, however, Bitcoin serves as a mechanism for holding a true standard against all of the money printing. And as long as companies like BlackRock and exchanges and stablecoin operators, as long as they act prudently, as long as they back their funds with actual assets, then for the most part, problems can be avoided. But the money printing is so systemic in the world today, in the fiat world, that it's questionable whether anything can save the fiat currencies from collapse. Now, 
One of the interesting aspects of the fall of Babylon in the time of Belshazzar is the mechanism through which the city was conquered. And if you remember the story, essentially what happened is the conquering army diverted the river that flowed through the city of Babylon, the river Euphrates. And by drying the river, they had direct access into the city through the riverbed. And it so happened that despite all of the security precautions that the Babylonians took in closing the city gates and all these sorts of things, they didn't close the gates of the river. And this allowed the army to march right into the city on the riverbed because the gates of the river were left open. Now, it's useful to think about what this river represents and how this mode of conquest might be reflected in modern terms. Rivers generally represent a form of commerce. In less advanced societies where roads are not so well established and that sort of thing, the rivers were the primary routes for delivering cargo and essentially for conducting commerce. And that's why in more primitive societies, more primitive regions, like in South America, for example, in the Amazon area, for example, the societies are very centered around the rivers. The rivers provide the life. They provide the water that is needed for all aspects of life. And they provide the channels, the routes for travel. It's a lot more practical to travel in a canoe on the river than to trek through the jungle with all of its associated risks. And so river routes have always been an important part of commerce all through history. And so when we think about the river being dried up as a way to enter the city of Babylon, then we're talking about commerce being dried up. We're talking about a constriction in the economy. And through that drying of the river, through that insufficiency of flowing money, so to speak, the army was able to enter and conquer. And so I think it's pretty clear that Bitcoin or Bitcoiners, if you want, can be understood as that army that in the time when the money is running out, that is to say the river is becoming dry, the main river that provided the prosperity of the city of Babylon, when that river is running dry, that is the opportunity for the conquerors to enter and take over. And so when the financial, when the fiat financial world is running out of money, that's the opportunity for Bitcoin to take over. And this is kind of what we see here, even in the initial, initial happenings with the Bitcoin ETF, that the price of Bitcoin has gone up $10,000 in just a matter of weeks because BlackRock has been needing to acquire Bitcoin to satisfy the demands of its investors. And it's important to note that the logic here, the reason why investors are investing in Bitcoin through BlackRock is because Bitcoin is offered as a safe haven asset. It's a way to hedge against inflation. And so essentially what we're seeing is that because the river is drying out, because of inflation, because the value of the dollar is decreasing, investors are seeking out other options, and in particular Bitcoin, as a means of preserving their assets. And so this is the very mechanism by which Babylon fell, that the river was dried up, the river of prosperity, the Euphrates, was dried up, and it was dried up by the operation of the conquering army, who then subsequently entered the city through that dry river. And so it's a very 
accurate illustration of how Bitcoin is taking over the world today. As the fiat money is drying up, as it's losing its value, it's not drying up in the sense of abundance. There's an abundance of dollars in the world today, and it's increasing every time the governments print more money. So it's not about abundance of the dollar, but it's about the value of the dollar. The value of the dollar is drying up. The dollar bills are literally shrinking. They are drying up. They're withering. That's the sense in which it is meant. There is less prosperity, even though there are more dollar bills in the world. And so the time has come. We are literally entering in these in these coming three months, this phase in which Babylon is falling. That's an amazing thing. And just the opportunity to live through these times is amazing, but it also requires prudence in terms of financial matters at this time. And so, and, and it's not just a question of finances, it's a question of allegiance. And Daniel in the city of Babylon that very night of its collapse refused the wealth of Babylon. The king offered, in reward for the interpretation of the handwriting in the wall, the king offered Daniel riches, wealth, Babylonian wealth, fiat wealth, and Daniel refused it. In the same way we, as Christians and as Bitcoiners today, should refuse the fiat wealth and instead keep our allegiance fully and wholly to God and to his kingdom. And in financial terms, that means uh, keeping our allegiance to Bitcoin as the monetary system on earth that reflects the kingdom of God in heaven. In that way, we show our allegiance to God through our financial actions here on earth. Just as Daniel demonstrated his allegiance to God by refusing the gifts of wealth from the king of Babylon. Daniel had a wealth that far surpassed the riches of a falling kingdom, and that wealth was the kingdom of God itself. Okay, so I think those are very important topics to really work through, and we talked a little bit about the cleansing of the temple, how Jesus threw out the money changers, and I think that's also very relevant here as well. Get your money off of the exchanges, but also come to the temple of God and seek and search out his justice and his righteousness. This isn't a time to be greedy for gain when the world is collapsing. It's a time to seek the things of the kingdom of God, because this world, as we know it, is coming to an end. I think the topics here that we just covered are very important, and I hope that the depth of that really reaches your heart, and that you understand how serious the times are that we're living in, how urgent it is to take your stand for the kingdom of God, take your stand for Bitcoin, and in that way, be like Daniel, who maintained his faithfulness and was not swept away by the offers of wealth from a falling kingdom. There are many today, I talk to many people, who only think in fiat terms, and if they regard Bitcoin because of its rising value, they regard it only in fiat terms. And this is the opposite of the example that Daniel showed at the time when the kingdom of Babylon was falling. He did not esteem the wealth of the falling kingdom, but instead he interpreted and understood from the handwriting on the wall that the wealth of Babylon, represented by these many, many tekel uparsin, these coins, these monetary denominations, he recognized that the money of Babylon was worthless. He said, and we should perhaps just read that. I'm turning to Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 5, 
verse 26, where Daniel interprets the writing on the wall. This is the interpretation of the thing. Many means God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Numbered is the old English way of saying counted. God hath counted thy kingdom. Or in other words, he's done the accounting. He's balanced the books and he's done doing so. The kingdom is finished. The numbering of the kingdom is finished, and the kingdom is finished. Verse 27, Tackle, thou art weighed in the balances, and art found wanting. Weighed in the balances is again a financial term in historical times, and even today. But particularly in historical times, they would weigh the products in the balances against the money. So for example, you would put the bag of wheat on one side, and then you'd put the gold on the other side. And according to the weight of the gold, the balance would show how much gold you need to pay for that bag of wheat, as an example. And so that's how fair prices were determined. That's how justice was determined in the area of commerce. And to this day, we use the symbol of balances as a symbol for justice. The court system and the entire system of justice is based on financial justice, ultimately, because it is through finances that we exchange value in society. And so everything we do in our interactions with each other, every value that we provide and every value that we receive, ultimately boils down to financial transactions. Sometimes those aren't accounted. Sometimes we give and receive without reverting all the way down to a financial transaction. And when we do use money, we use a variety of different currencies and different means of transferring money, whether it be credit card, bank card, check, cash, money order. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. There are a million ways that transactions manifest, but essentially all services and products that are exchanged in the world can be boiled down to or characterized by financial transactions. And that's what the balances ultimately represent. The justice in society through just financial transactions. And so here in verse 27, it says, Thou art weighed in the balances. In other words, the justice of your commerce is tested and you are found wanting or lacking. In other words, there's not enough gold in the one plate to balance the wheat in the other plate or vice versa. There's injustice going on in the financial system. That is the judgment that has been pronounced on the kingdom of Babylon. And that is the judgment that has been pronounced on the world today. Verse 28, Perez or Uparsin. This means thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That is the end of the kingdom of Babylon. Now, the Medes and the Persians were both Arabian nations, nations of the Middle East, as was Babylon. So it might be interesting to think about how this division might play out today. But again, it's about the wealth being divided and given to others. In the context of the collapse of the dollar, this would indicate that the wealth of those who hold dollars will ultimately be given to others in particular to those who hold Bitcoin. How that might or might not manifest remains to be seen, but the Bible is very clear that the wealth of the world, the fiat wealth, will go to zero, so to speak. And perhaps it's worth just reviewing that in the book of James, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Go to now, ye rich men, Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Interestingly, this expression, go to now, ye rich men. Go to now is found, this isn't a common phrase or expression in the Bible, but it is found in the story of the building of the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, verse 3, it says, And they said one to another, 
Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they made brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So they centralized. We talked about this in our very early episodes on this podcast. And verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. So now it's about the coming of the Lord. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. They've united like a one-world government. And they have all one language. Have we not overcome the language barriers today with online translation? And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Verse 7, Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. So here we have twice the people of Babel saying, Go to, using this expression, go to, let us do this or let us do that. And then God also uses this same expression in this story. Go to, let us do this and that. And again here we see that God's answer to the centralization of power on the earth was to scatter the people, was to decentralize them. Okay, and now back to the book of James chapter 5, we see this expression used once again. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. This is addressed to the rich men. It doesn't say all men in this case. It says to the rich men, those who are rich in this world. Verse 2, it says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. This is not talking about Bitcoin. This is talking about fiat riches, which are corrupt. And it's using the illustration of garments that are moth-eaten. That is to say, they have deteriorated. And garments represent character. Therefore, Christians understand the symbolism of white robes as representing a pure character. Here, it says that their riches are corrupted and their garments, their character, has deteriorated. It's moth-eaten. It's been eaten by the bad moths, by the bad flying creatures, by the bad angels. The moths you could compare to angels, just like birds. The things that fly in the sky, in the heavens, are symbolic of spirits, good or evil. But in this case, evil spirits. Nobody wants moths. They destroy. And so the evil spirits have destroyed the characters of the people of the world, particularly those who have amassed riches through corrupt means. That is what is encompassed in this one verse. Your riches are corrupt and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse 3, your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Now, here we have the judgment of the end of the world. The fire, the devouring fire of God's judgment is explained right here in this verse. It's, it says, your tarnished gold and silver, your rusting metals shall be a witness against you. In other words, the deteriorating value of the fiat money is a witness against the wealthy and shall eat your flesh or devour as it were fire. So here you have the devouring fire, the consuming fire of God's judgment, which is expressed in terms of gold and silver that is losing its value. Fiat money, in other words, losing its value, deteriorating. That is the judgment of God against the rich. It says, ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Isn't that what the wealthy people and wealthy governments and wealthy corporations of the world have done? Verse 4, Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, the wages of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud. So he's telling the wealthy who have fraudulently withheld the wages of the laborers. Do you know any 
corporations that withhold wages. This is how the tax system works in the United States. The taxes are withheld. The wages are withheld from the income of the workers. And the Bible here says that this is kept back. It's withheld by fraud. How do we know it's by fraud? Because the government takes the liberty unrightfully to print money anytime it wants. So why then does it need to tax the taxpayer? The money printing exposes the fraudulent withholding of taxes. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. The wages cry, and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. So God hears the cries of those who have been oppressed by the burden of taxation and inflation by the powers of government and big finance. That cry has reached the ears of the Lord. Verse 5, Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanted. Again, referring to wealth and lacking character. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. People faithfully pay their taxes. They don't resist. And yet ye have condemned and killed the just. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. That's where we're at right now. When we talk about what's going to happen in the next three months, when we talk about the coming of the Lord drawing nigh, that's what we're talking about. Verse 9, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Now we've talked a lot in early episodes about Bitcoin's role as judge, that it brings justice. And we see, here. I mean, here it refers to the judge standing before the door. And we know that in these coming three months, we're also going to see the next Bitcoin halving. And this is the first halving that will push Bitcoin definitely in the area of hard money. Prior to the coming halving, the inflation rate of Bitcoin through the block rewards is, I think, just under 2%. So it's not far away from the inflation rate of gold, traditionally, of 2%, which is generally considered to be the ideal inflation rate, just because gold was always the best known money the world had ever known. And that's where that idea of the ideal 2% inflation comes from. But now we have a better money than gold with lower inflation. And I think it's no longer accurate to say that 2% inflation is the ideal because we have something that's even better. And that's Bitcoin. And this coming halving is going to introduce a drastically lower inflation rate than the world has ever known before. Less than half, less than 1%. And Furthermore, it's going to push Bitcoin mining in a direction it's never gone before. It's going to essentially make mining based on the block reward unprofitable. And therefore, the profitability of mining will depend much more heavily on the transaction fees as opposed to the block reward. Now, it's interesting that last year we had this increase in block fees as a result of ordinal inscriptions on the Bitcoin blockchain and also the introduction of BRC20 tokens on Bitcoin. And these things have led to a very high fee market and have kept mining profitable and serve to mask the fact that the block reward is essentially going away, is decreasing to the point of being the less significant part of mining income. So in a certain sense, the halving is not so relevant anymore because of the increased activity 
with respect to ordinal inscriptions and BRC20 tokens and things like that. But on the other hand, because those types of transactions and the fees associated with them have masked the effect of the coming halving, it also puts us in somewhat of a precarious situation in the sense that if the fiat financial world collapses, and as a result, there's less money floating around for ordinal inscriptions and BRC20s, then all of a sudden, those fees that have been a boon to miners of late could suddenly disappear at the same time that the block reward is cut in half, and essentially that would wipe out the mining industry. They simply would not be able to stay profitable. And this brings me to an important topic that I wanted to cover today, which is, we kind of alluded to it, which is what is the actual price of Bitcoin? And it all comes back to what is the cost of mining Bitcoin? And so when you think about mining Bitcoin, there are essentially two ways to think about it. Usually, and this is what the vast majority of miners think about today. Usually what miners do, especially on the large scale, is they run it as a business for making a profit in sort of a circular fashion. And they do this by paying the electricity in fiat currency, earning the Bitcoin from the work of the miners, selling the Bitcoin for fiat currency, and then repeating the cycle, paying the electricity with those proceeds, earning Bitcoin, selling Bitcoin, paying electricity, earning Bitcoin, selling Bitcoin, paying the electricity as a continual cycle. And of course, as they're doing this, because the price of Bitcoin is increasing, they are gaining revenues as they do this and expanding and building more mining farms and so forth. But when the price of Bitcoin crashes because, for example, the dollar crashes and people simply can't buy Bitcoin anymore, and furthermore, if the mining fees decrease and therefore the amount of Bitcoin that comes in as a result of this, you know, at the same electricity cost decreases, then this puts basically every mining business at a loss, you know, based on some threshold of how efficient they operate. And so essentially, in the worst case, in the case that miners become unprofitable and start closing their doors, hash rate could go down, lots of things could happen, and this could be an interesting scenario for Bitcoin. But this is all part of the dynamic. This is why Bitcoin has this difficulty adjustment every two weeks, so that ultimately, TikTok next block, the network's going to keep on operating. Now, that's one scenario, and that's describing how mining is operated as a business and the risks associated with that. Businesses take in an income, make expenditures, and earn a profit in the process. And depending on the nature of the business, there are risks associated with that. And mining is as risky of a business as going long on Bitcoin. For the most part, it's safe to do, but at times it can also be very perilous because the Bitcoin price can go down in the short term. Plus, the mining industry is dependent on the fee income, which can also fluctuate in addition to the fluctuations of the Bitcoin price. So both of those factors together can represent a substantial amount of risk for Bitcoin mining as a business. Now, the other way to mine Bitcoin is as a means of converting fiat money into Bitcoin. And this, I believe, is the more permanent, certainly the more conservative way to do mining. And essentially, in this way, the fiat income of the business is converted to Bitcoin and kept in Bitcoin huddled in Bitcoin. And in this way, the risk is removed because the electricity is paid in the fiat currency. And then that currency is converted to Bitcoin. But 
the Bitcoin is never converted back to fiat currency. And this assumes that the business has a source of income other than the mining itself. In other words, the mining is not so much part of the business operations as it is simply a means of storing the business's revenue in the form of Bitcoin. It's simply a way of hodling, and it's a way of doing it without the involvement of an exchange, without the involvement of KYC and other regulations. So this is the more conservative way of mining, and it's the way that truly supports Bitcoin, because ultimately it represents a transfer of wealth from fiat into Bitcoin permanently as opposed to the regular mining operations, which are continually cycling the fiat currency through Bitcoin and back again. We are about to enter a time when I believe the traditional Bitcoin mining operations are not going to be sustainable. They won't be able to continue operating. And what we will be left with is the opportunity to mine solely as a means of converting fiat currency to Bitcoin. And when that happens... And particularly when the fiat currency has lost a lot of its value and the amount of Bitcoin that's coming back in returns from the miners is relatively small because of the decreased block reward and potentially the decreased fee revenue from Bitcoin ordinal inscriptions and BRC20 tokens and those things. In that scenario, you're going to see the true cost of Bitcoin, the true value of Bitcoin where you'll pay the usual amount of electricity, but you'll receive fewer rewards in terms of Bitcoin from the miner, from the mining machines, which means that those Bitcoins are more valuable. And so you can do the math on that and actually find out what the true cost of Bitcoin is in that way and what it will be in various scenarios. And ultimately, that is the true cost of Bitcoin at any point in time. As a miner, as one who is producing Bitcoin, you yourself determine the price of that Bitcoin. And ultimately, because of market forces, you're going to have to charge for the Bitcoin. If somebody wants to buy Bitcoin from you, and as a miner you have it, the amount of fiat money you're going to charge them is going to be determined by how much it costs you to produce that Bitcoin. And so, in other words, you're going to sell it to them for at least what it costs you in terms of electricity and other costs to produce that Bitcoin. That's how the true value of Bitcoin will be set going forward when the exchanges can no longer provide a trustworthy open market estimate. Okay, And that's going to ultimately mean that the countries who can produce Bitcoin the most cheaply will ultimately be able to offer Bitcoin at the best prices and they will become the wealthiest countries. So there's a lot behind that, but I guess the point I just wanted to make there is that there is a safe way to get into Bitcoin mining, and that is by taking a stable fiat revenue stream and using that to pay for the operation of the Bitcoin mining and then just hodl the Bitcoin directly. Now, you can't run a big operation that way because the costs of running a mine would be enormous to pay that out of pocket and not repay it with the proceeds in Bitcoin. But for sort of the average person who's working at a fiat job, this is a very advantageous way of converting one's income into Bitcoin. That income can be spent on miners and the electricity to run them, and in return, one receives the Bitcoin, just as if they had taken that income and gone to an exchange and bought Bitcoin with it. The only difference is that it's non-KYC, which is a big difference, and that the price is not determined by the exchange, but by the actual cost of mining that Bitcoin. In other words, it's a fairer cost, even if at times it might be higher or lower than what might be possible on an exchange. So I think that's 
important to understand those two different ways of conducting mining. The conservative way that simply serves to exchange the fiat money and sink it into Bitcoin. And then there's the speculative way of running a mining business where the Bitcoin is continually recycled in order to sustain the business operations. And this is very risky. And what I would submit to you is that in the next three months, it would be wise for individuals who are able to get into mining, to use their fiat income, to invest in mining, buy a miner, plug it in, earn Bitcoin directly. And in that way, you can insulate yourself from the risks associated with the regular mining business and with speculative investment in general. And if your fiat income dries up, you can always turn off the miner and you're not losing money. All right, so I think that covers now the topics that I wanted to cover, and I hope you find that beneficial and that it gives you maybe some ideas on how to structure your life in the next three months, how to restructure in order to bring your allegiance into the kingdom of God and decrease your dependence on the systems, the finances of Babylon which are disappearing, drying up, okay? So I wish you the best this week. Have a blessed week, and may God be your strength during the remaining months of this biblical year. Bye-bye.